Okay, so, hello friends. It's uh, uh, nice to be in New York, and beautiful sunny morning, so um, welcome. Uh, I say welcome as if I'm welcoming you, but actually I'm the visitor, of course. So, like uh, Sebane was saying, I was, I was here a year ago, so there's some kind of... Uh, nice familiarity in uh, in just arriving back here and as i came through the door i was i was struck you know in the middle of a uh, uh, you know, noisy busy midtown what a beautiful space this is actually i actually took a photograph i came to the door and i saw the sun coming through and the plant and my little that kind of set up here and i thought wow what a privilege no. So just to appreciate, to express some appreciation for that, for the you know the, the the delight and privilege that I feel in coming to kind of just share this exploration a little with you over the time we have, and you know that therefore that appreciation to New York Insight for making this possible, and uh, just the kind of the wish for the flourishing and beneficial ongoing of that. The a fifty percent rent increase sounds. Uh, scary in some ways and that trust in the goodness like Sebene was saying the goodness of all the support that makes this uh, happen and continue to happen so the title of the the title of the day was um, open and free sounds good doesn't it (laughs) open and free Life of liberation. And I don't have so much, hence I don't need the lectern, right? Because I don't have uh, much on the agenda for what or how to explore that. But I thought my main intention was rather than um, me trying to kind of lay some teachings on you, as it were, to, uh, of course, offer some reflections and uh, context, but also really to give the space to see, you know, what's freeing up in your life as a Dhamma practitioner? How are things freeing up? And uh, equally, part of that, so sometimes we're in touch more with the freeing up, the gratitude for our practice, the kind of the blessings of things freeing up as I... uh, you know, attend to my heart and train my mind and uh, notice that process happening. And conversely, still part of the same process, but sometimes we're more in touch with the other side, right? The sense of ah, feeling the unfreedom, feeling the unopenness, feeling the constraints of my, uh, you know, habit patterns, uh, reactivity, uh, etc. So, whichever side of that is more alive for you now, and there may be areas where one, where one's noticing the, the deepening, freeing up of things, and at the same time other areas where one feels the sense of constraint. In some, in, you know, my intention really is just to give some uh, time and space for the exploration of this extraordinary thing called being alive being conscious, not being able actually to pinpoint what this is, this experience of being alive. Only when we confront 
the fact of being conscious, only able to find the mysterious actuality of being here without being able to actually define it in any way and seeing together what we might find out. Maybe that's enough for now. So let's uh, make some time for meditation before we explore any more together. So we'll sit for um, a longish half hour, let's say. And I'll give a little instruction at the beginning and then also leave us to just let the silence and stillness of things work on us. So first, let the transition into meditation, even if you're very familiar with meditation practice, let the transition be a conscious one. Really use the qualities of your posture to support your practice. So firstly, feel the ground. If you're on a chair, let your feet be well planted on the floor. If you're on a cushion, just feeling that contact. And letting the sense of ground really evoke a quality of attention that's steady. What in Zen is sometimes called sitting like a mountain. And then also letting your posture really be upright. And unless you have some kind of back issue that means you need the support of the back of the chair, I'd really encourage you to you know, not slump back into the chair. It's, it's quite hard to maintain a really bright attention when, you're, when your back is a little collapsed in that way. So just to let your back be upright, to feel that little inward curve in your lower spine. And as you let yourself be really upright, to feel the way that really contributes to a sense of brightness, of attention. It's like it evokes a willingness to be present. So letting your chest be open. You might want to roll your shoulders back a little. And then sensing the way that openness in your chest evokes a quality of receptivity. 
and also the sense of ease in your posture. Letting your belly relax and soften. Letting the muscles in your face, particularly around your eyes and your jaw, letting those come to rest. Just sensing the natural immediacy of sitting here, steady, upright, open, relaxed. Noticing that awareness is right here. Even though we can spend a lot of effort in meditation trying to be aware, as if awareness is somewhere else to be pursued or tamed, just know it's really acknowledging the natural wakefulness of your experience. Whatever's happening, whatever bodily sensations, whatever passing thoughts, it's happening right here, within the embrace of awareness, within this natural capacity for knowing Receiving whatever happens. So seeing if your practice can be held within this natural, immediate knowing of awareness. Just letting the sense of sitting happen here. Letting the natural rhythm of breathing happen here. And just using this most simple aspect of experience, body sitting, breathing. As a way to just ground your attention. As a way to honor and rest in awareness. In the same way that the immediacy of awareness is natural, that the movement of breath is natural, that the dance of sensation of bodily life is natural, So too, one can notice the natural movement of mind, the natural production of images, ideas, memories, 
speculations. Seeing if you can just leave those productions of mind alone. So just happen by themselves. Just like the sounds of the day happen by themselves. And in the moments that you noticed that, that you notice that a particular thought has seduced your attention, that your attention has contracted around that thought and you've disappeared into it. And seeing if you can really notice that contraction, the way your awareness has become a kind of tunnel vision focused on that one thought. And just letting the contraction soften. Let it soften with the natural relaxation of the outbreath. Letting your attention drop back in to being here. Here in awareness. Here in embodied experience. Here in the natural, fluid unfolding of all that arises. If the natural presence of awareness doesn't seem like enough of a support by itself to stay present, then use the qualities of the breath to support you. Letting your attention really inhabit that sense of expansion with the in-breath. Letting your attention expand more fully into being here with each in-breath. Allowing the relaxation of each out-breath. Letting your attention rest more fully into being here. And sensing deeply into that moment of stillness between breaths. Seeing if you can really stay. Staying in the still point of awareness. In this way, we might say we train ourselves in awareness. Or that we invite the awareness that's already here to suffuse our experience. Just notice where your attention is. And if it's caught up around some thought object, don't make a big deal out of that. Just use this reminder to notice, to study the experience of being caught up, to feel the contraction around that idea or image or memory or whatever.
and let yourself have the freedom of dissolving the contraction. Letting the grasping after that thought object soften as you breathe out. Finding your way back to the natural immediacy of being here. Here where awareness abides freely. Where experience unfolds freely. Just letting this natural awareness and natural experience be intimate with one another. Blending like water and milk. Indistinguishable from one another. Is there anything you actually need to do to be here? Maybe the invitation is more towards a gentle undoing rather than trying to change your experience, having the graciousness to leave it alone, to just let body be body and sounds be sounds and thoughts be thoughts. all unfolding freely in this field of knowing that we call awareness. It doesn't matter that your mind moves. It doesn't matter where it goes. It doesn't matter how long you may have been lost in that thought. There's nothing you can do about those things. What matters, what you can do, is in the moment that you see what's happened. The moment that life wakes you up from that unconscious thought stream to see the way you've been invested lost. In that moment you can gently, graciously drop it. Surrender that thought stream back to awareness. Recognize that everything is right here. So just maintaining this sincerity, the willingness to unhook and to return, the willingness to just let awareness hold your experience for the remaining few minutes of the sitting. And as we come to the end of the sitting, let yourself be equally conscious with the transition from the formality of meditation. 
so that fundamentally nothing ends or changes. Just letting your sphere of awareness widen. Becoming more inclusive, sensing the whole experience of being here. The sense of body and the space around your body. The sounds in the room. And when the bell rings, as you start to include seeing and movement in the sphere of your attention. See if you can just gently stay intimate with your moment-to-moment experience so that even as the formality of meditation ends, the continuity of awareness remains. I'll offer some orientating reflections, maybe, but do I just just to get a sense a little? Because a few of you I do know actually, but most of you uh, not. So I just want to have a little sense of your practice background, and I know that's sometimes hard to quantify, right? But maybe you just could raise your hand if you feel like you're this. This is a new world for you, like New York Insight or meditation. Uh, if it feels like it's a fairly new world and you're just finding your way. The reason I'm cautious to ask that is after 25 years, I think I could probably raise my hand and say, yeah, it's always a new world, right? I mean, that's in a way, the, the way that our practice stays alive is by letting it always be a new world, a new moment, a new breath, a new discovery. I remember when I was, uh, when I was uh, in the first few years of my practice and spending quite a lot of time with one of my teachers and how he would get excited sometimes and say, I just had this great insight. Yeah. And the, the, the freshness. I said, oh, so I would be curious. Oh, great. He said, yeah. And it would, he'd be talking about uh, some insight into impermanence. And I'd be thinking, really? Can you had plenty of those already? Right. As if we sometimes we notice that tendency. As if we think our practice is going. You know, we're going on checking boxes off. As it, right? As if I'm going to get somewhere, and then that's done. <laughs> and get somewhere else. So, of course, in some ways, always new, always fresh, and yet it would just be helpful for me to have a sense if uh, of. How many of you feel like, yeah, the world of meditation is is recent, let's say, that you're getting into this practice? You could just raise your hand. Okay. So I guess that means the majority of you are, are, that you're kind of regular New York Insight people, maybe. No. It's my first time here. It's your first time here. Maybe you could raise your hand if it's your first time here at New York Insight. Okay. All right. So a few of you. So, 
not that I know you any better now, but that's that's maybe help. We have this sense, right, or of a path, and you know that's the image. It's very consistent in in uh, most forms of practice. We talk about a path of practice. Right? We might uh, have a sense of entering the path, walking the path, being on the path, as it were. And that's, that's a useful image, right? That's why a lot of different traditions use it. A sense of, uh, of walking a path, of the, the journey of transformation. And there's a kind of irony or paradox in there that there's, there's a journey to be made right? there's, a, there's a path to be travelled, there's a sense of where I am and whatever it is that brings me to practice and usually some kind of dissatisfaction with the way I notice my mind functioning or my, uh, my heart responding to life coupled with not just a dissatisfaction but a, a, some like the compass of our heart pointing us to the sense that there's a deeper, freer possibility for us. And so the path is one from the condition of uh, confusion or dissatisfaction towards that uh, deeper sense of freedom that we recognize is possible. Maybe we just hope is possible. Maybe we're here to check out whether it's possible. Or whether, or maybe we have those moments of something deep and precious opening up in our experience that tell us in an unshakable way, I know this is possible. So that sense of path is a really helpful image. And yet, there's a kind of paradox with the idea that the methodology of this path is about not trying to go anywhere. Like, don't go anywhere. Stay where you are. Right? When you notice, like I was just saying in the meditation instructions, when you notice that you've gone somewhere, stop. Drop it. So there's a kind of... Uh, these two might seem like they sit awkwardly together. There is a journey to be made from the A of uh, confusion and dissatisfaction to the B of freedom or liberation. And yet the paradox is that teachings point us to the fact that we can't, that B, the B of liberation, isn't out there somewhere. And the image of path can often support that sense of looking towards my liberation next month or next year or after I go on retreat or when I've dealt with this or that neurosis or something, right? And yet, actually, even though there's an ideal of a journey to be made, there's the methodology of the fact that somehow, mysteriously, extraordinarily, B manifests itself by us remaining as sincerely and attunedly and graciously as we can at A. Actually hanging out in our dissatisfaction and studying it. Get, staying close to our confusion and seeing what, uh, what the assumptions are in it. So there's, there's 
Within the Buddhist tradition, there's three aspects to this path, right? which uh, Buddha call in Pali, those of you who might be familiar, sila samadhi panya, um, often translated wisdom, uh, virtue, training, and wisdom. So the ground of it, the virtue, like the kind of the orientating towards goodness of heart, and feeling for one's goodness of heart, actualizing one's goodness of heart. What we might summarize by be kind. That's the ground of this practice, be kind. And then the mind training of meditation and uh, that noticing how uh, our attention goes off here and there and here and there and here and there all the time. And the, the training of bringing it back. What we might summarize as be mindful. And then the, the wisdom part in terms of just noticing, waking up to the way our assumptions and our view of self and our view of other and our view of world condition our experience and paying close enough attention and exploring opening that up in such a way that we start to have a fuller or more unified we might say sense of life what could be um, summarized by be wise so that sounds good right be kind be mindful be wise that's the path. Be kind, be mindful, be wise. And actually, actually, that's a pretty complete set of instructions. <laughs> but we seem to have trouble applying those instructions, right? And that's where the sense of path is, because you know you can't, you don't just switch that stuff on. It's not enough to decide. You might decide. We could all sign up to deciding. Yes, I want to be kind. I want to be mindful, I want to be wise. But we can't just kind of go forth and be kind and be mindful and wise because our, our patterns and our contractions and our neediness and greediness and laziness and craziness gets in the way of that. So there's a path to being kind, to, to working with the heart to working with the, the fears and defenses and armoring of the heart. Right. The path of being kind is a work on noticing all the ways in which, you know, that all the things that are threatening about that. The ways I want need to I feel like I need to hold on to what's happening over here and uh, feel suspicious maybe of what's happening over there. I was at um I was at an evening with Krishna Das yesterday evening. I don't know. Did any of you go? No. So you, Krishna Das is a, a kind of well-known, well-loved singer of Indian devotional uh, chants. And a friend introduced me to him in India uh, 23 years ago. And I've really, I've always loved his music. And I think Sharon Salzberg, who, does she teach here sometimes? Yeah. So they're great friends and they teach together sometimes. And she's... Uh, she often actually uh, puts him as a credit in her books because she says a lot of the inspiration she writes while listening to his music. 
So for 23 years, I've loved his music. And when my travels here and there, I'm always looking out to see if he's playing. He's touring a lot. And I've, we've never been in the same city at the same time. And then actually, it was just a tweet from Sharon uh, last week that alerted me to the fact that I was going to be here at the same time. So I went along last night. It was fantastic. It was in a church on the, in the Upper West Side. And there's 3,000 people about chanting and singing. It's that kirtan style of call and response often. And then people, you know, as the, chant, the tempo speeds up of the chants, people start to sway in the aisles and uh, leap around. And it was just extraordinary, beautiful. No, it's as a, a, you know, a sense of really work enlivening the heart. And in that enlivening, the, the way that uh, the usual sort of d- defensiveness of the heart, the usual, the sort of the tendency we can have to have a slightly uh, conspicuous sense of these other dreaded human beings that I share <laughs> space with, kind of softens and dissolves. And that sense of a kind of unity, love, a, a, a complicity with others comes very much alive. Beautiful. And in some, uh, in some traditions, in some practices, that kind of instant kind of just, uh, it's like a love injection into the heart is, is very much, um, gets very much emphasized. And yet Krishnadas was also, you know, pointing to it last night and speaking in between the chants as a, a path of devotion. You know? Well, it's not enough to rely on the inspiration of the moment. You sing, you chant with a lot of other people, you get very happy. Actually, your system gets flooded with happy chemicals, right? Within endorphins and dopamine and things like that, I guess. But that's also a practice of actually, you know, and he was talking about it in terms of chanting, right? of actually, you know, bringing yourself to the chant, bringing yourself to that expression of love. So the, the path of heart, of deepening virtue or deepening kindness. And then there's a, you know, the path of mindfulness, practice of mindfulness. And we might, we might very well sense that as a, as a path, right? We, we, uh, and we might seem sometimes like a rather shockingly or depressingly long path. And we talk about being mindful and we hear meditation instructions like, uh, like I'm guilty of as much as anyone else that seem to suggest one was going to abide and be present. But actually, the you know, you might notice for yourself, what does your mindfulness practice reveal to you? It reveals a lot of mindlessness, yeah. right? It's like if you, if you, and please, you know, I'm not recommending this, actually, but if you start to kind of, you know, look, look at the percentages, it's not very inspiring. <laughs> and the sense of path... Oh, wow, we sense, oh, I'm on a path of mindfulness. I tend to my practice, I, you know, I tend to, my, to myself. And we get more attuned 
We get more able to sense into what it even means to be present. We start to get more of a sense of what, what, it's, what embodied attention is actually like. And I don't know, if you can, maybe you can remember at the beginning of your practice. It's like we, hear, we might hear the instruction to be mindful of the breath or mindful of body. But actually it's more like, I mean it's a strange word, mindful. Right? Because that's what it feels like initially. My mind's full of ideas about body and ideas about breath. Oh yes, now I'm breathing in, now I'm breathing out. Uh, right? And it's not really an embodied attention. It's like we, we kind of, it's sort of a top-down, oh yes, body is doing this and that. And then we, actually, we learn to actually inhabit our experience more and more and to trust that more and more. So there's, a, there's a, a path of mindfulness. And even though the measuring of that, which, which is kind of undermining of our experience if we do that, the measuring of that doesn't look so good in terms of the percentages. Right? But actually, we, if, we, if we look back at the trajectory of our practice, we see, oh, that there, there's a deepening of that attunement. That's much more helpful than judging one's practice in the moment, right? Like if, you, if you've got a daily practice, if you, please don't judge what happens. You might be sitting with a dull mind, distracted mind, uh, whatever. And how easy it is to think, oh, well, what's the point? Or to compare your practice to some moment that you had in a silent meditation retreat. Or to compare your practice to whatever might seem like the deepest or stillest moment you ever had in meditation. As if your experience should uh, replicate that all the time. So if one compares in that way, (coughs) it can only undermine your sense of your practice. But actually, if one just looks back over the trajectory and to see, oh yeah, when there's, there's uh, over whatever the months or years that I've been practicing, there's a kind of a, just a deepening capacity for noticing what's happening, a deepening capacity to drop the uh, the endless ruminations and return. And if we, so if we see in that way, that might give ourselves a sense of faith in the path of practice. Wisdom is a little more tricky to quantify, right? Path of wisdom. And yet, the same thing, there's a sense of uh, change over time. That our world, our world view which is basically a worldview of me as a thing, a thing called Martin, that's somehow um, separate from the rest of life and negotiates with it to see what I can get, and have and do and become and avoid and try and be happy that way. That's probably the place all of us started in practice. And 
the absurdity of some of that starts to stand out to us as we practice. I mean, just as you, as you let yourself hang out in the sphere of awareness and presence, and as you start to sense the, the intimacy that there is with life, the fact that, you know, the sounds of the day, you can't really hear where the sound ends and where your hearing of it begins. That intimacy with life, the immediacy of life, the fluidity of life starts to work on us, starts to transform that worldview. And so even though we might still have the experience of feeling separate, contracted, the wisdom starts to work on us in knowing that even in the midst of that of something being activated, that contraction being activated, one knows that that's actually not the condition that's true about the way my life is. And one starts to to know that even though I've got tight somewhere, there's actually uh, a more intimate relationship with life. I mean, it's a it's a pretty strange idea, right? That life seems to be this thing. It's going in 360 degrees around me. Everywhere I look, life, life, life. It stretches out infinitely. The whole universe I can point to is everywhere. And everything, you know, there's you and you and you in it. But basically you're all one thing called the whole universe or out there. But there's one thing that doesn't seem integrated in it. Hmm? (laughs) Me. Everything else sort of seems like it belongs together. But I've got this special privileged position <laughs> of being the observer, the observer of life. Now notice for yourself, look, you've got this kind of 360 degree sense of the universe being out there in every direction. So if we start to contemplate that, it, it, it can't really sustain. It starts to look a bit spurious as a view so there's a path and I would say it's an infinite path of the way wisdom the way our world view the way our sense of how life is starts to change and the wisdom of how to respond to life when we study our practice we see what tightness and contraction and suspicion does to our experience We see what the kind of compulsive contracting around some object and insisting I need that, I want that, I've got to have that. And what I was calling in the meditation that tunnel vision. We start to see what that does to our experience. So we, we deepen in the wisdom of letting go, we might say. So that in some ways is a little, is a, a way of looking at the path. Path of Kindness, path of mindfulness, path of wisdom. And, like I say, we've got this paradox of treading the path that we can recognize of a deepening uh, freedom of heart, a deepening uh, power of mind, and a deepening liberation of awareness. And yet, the tendency in path is to somehow be anticipating where the path is leading. 
when my heart's got free of this or that problem, then I'll be kind of radiating kindness in an uninhibited way. When I've learned to be more concentrated or when I've done some uh, proper retreats or if I had time to meditate a bit more often than I do, then dot, dot, dot. And it's very interesting, it's very important, I would say, to look at what you do with the dot, dot, dot. What you, the idea you create of where the path is leading. Because you can't actually anticipate, if you're walking a path you've never been on before, even though you may, people may have described a sense of destination to you, even though you may have come up with all kinds of ideas about what it's going to be like, you can't actually, um, you know, you can't anticipate an experience you've never had. Right? It's like if I hold an orange up. That's an experience you've had of eating an orange, right? So I say, imagine the, what the orange tastes like. You could, it's more accurate. But if I hold up a fruit that you've never seen and never tasted, I say, imagine what this is like. Even if I might describe it to you in terms of the description has to correspond to elements of, dis- the, of experience you already have, right? If I say, oh, it tastes like an, a different fruit that you've also never tasted, that doesn't help. Right? So I can only describe the taste of this theoretical fruit in terms of reference points you already have. We can only describe the sense of the destination of path or uh, the fruition of practice in terms of experiences we've already had, but they don't correspond. That fruit has a unique taste, and the only way, the only way to really get it, to really internalize it, to really know it, is to taste the fruit. I can sit here all day describing what it tastes like. It's a really, really poor substitute. But the more I describe it, the more ideas you'll start to have about what it might be like. And yet those ideas can only be very partial and mostly distorted. So too with the path. So we've explored you know, the usefulness of a path, the beauty of a path, the truth of a sense of path. Right? This deepening, deepening of the freeing of heart, deepening of the training of mind, deepening of the, of the freedom of wisdom. But where do you think that's going? Because wherever one thinks that's going has to be a distortion. Transformation is unimaginable inconceivable and you may notice that in those moments where something in your practice has really freed up it's like oh oh often in some way it feels deeply familiar and yet the very what characterizes real insight is the sense of a new possibility a new way of inhabiting life So we're asked to, you know, engage sincerely with this beautiful path of practice. And yet, two two things. One, to 
be suspicious. You can't stop anticipating where you think it's going. But to be suspicious of the conclusions you draw about your path. To be suspicious about where it is you think you're going. And simultaneously to recognize that the path isn't leading anywhere. It's not, it's not, the path isn't pointing us to some imagined future. The fruition of the path isn't, definitely not, going to happen in another moment. Because there isn't one, right? Nobody has ever managed to experience another moment. <laughs> Try. Try to get yourself to another moment. Right? Oh, no. Actually, it's quite a good way to recognize the, the absolute all-encompassing nature of this moment by trying to get yourself, and, in, and inevitably failing, trying to get to another moment. So we're asked to... Pr- to use the, 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 the helpfulness of a metaphor of path, a language of path, while somehow really acknowledging the truth that there is no other moment, there is no other place, there is no other experience. This is it. This moment, this place, this experience. Body like this, mind like this, heart like this sense data like this can we feel for the fruition of the path can we feel for the freedom of being can we feel for the an, uh, the a limitless openness of heart can we feel for an immediacy and clarity of mind Can we feel for a responsiveness of wisdom in this moment, in this experience, however it is? We don't get to choose the the quality of the moment, right? It's just like this. Body is like this. Heart is like this. So we're invited to walk the path and walk the path, and walk the path, while letting the path collapse into itself. While letting the whole sense of practice not be so much a practice towards freedom, but rather by letting ourselves have the freedom to practice. Like this like this so in, in, in giving some reflections about the nature of path and I'm also trying to kind of pull the rug out from underneath the sense of path and in doing so just to see what's, what, where does that leave you what's alive what uh, may, be, uh, may you be engaged with 
as you sit here, engaged with in your life, whether it be in terms of the language of a development and a deepening and a working with, or whether it be in terms of the, the resolution of all that in the immediacy of what's happening. So, anything that you might like to discuss, explore, question, comment on, challenge, argue with, (laughs) please feel free. And maybe you could just say your names when you speak. Yeah, please. Hi, Martin. Thank you for a very inspiring talk. Uh, My question is, uh, as we become more open and free, uh, we sort of lose these incentives we used to have, like, uh, I really want that promotion, so let me work hard. And now the promotion doesn't look important anymore, mm. and maybe the work looks less interesting. Mm. <laughs> so, are there any guidelines on you know, what's worth doing and how to be motivated? So you want to have your dharma cake and eat it? <laughs> No? So is that, is that your experience? That as your practice deepens, the, the drive that you may have had prior to this around career and promotion, uh, that you're losing your motivation for that? It's uh, two things. One is I'm not sure what's, what's doing, if I should change career or, you know. Mm. And sometimes even after I made the decision, uh, uh, there's more sloth and proper. Uh, so more sloth and proper. Uh huh. Like uh, when I was younger, I would like motivate myself. Like after I finish writing this paper, I will go get myself a cappuccino. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now the cappuccino doesn't look very interesting, and you know. And nor does the work. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes even the work does look interesting, but I, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, firstly, I think that's a very good contemplation. Right? Like you said, what's worth pursuing? And that might be an uncomfortable contemplation. Because if I've spent, you know, if my conditioning has pointed me in a certain direction and told me, maybe all of my life, what it is that's worth pursuing, and if I've invested a lot of my own time and energy and belief in that direction for a long time, then when I start to question that deeply, is this what's worth pursuing? That's an uncomfortable contemplation. But, unfortunately, once you start to wake up around your motivation, you can't really go back to sleep. (laughs) That's what's meant. I was teaching at IDP on Friday and we were talking a little bit about this. That's what's meant by the saying, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance isn't bliss. But there's a time when oh, we start to wake up and we start to see some uncomfortable truths and it's like, oh, maybe it would be easier to go back to sleep. And we look at those who are sleepwalking through life around us and they don't seem to have the same kind of existential <laughs> stuff going on, right? But actually, that, um, the discomfort of that contemplation and the existential angst, what is worth pursuing? 
What's what? Here I am. I've got mind capacity, heart capacity, body capacity. I've got energy, enthusiasm, and I've got some sense of the, the, a great depth, dimension to life. What should I do with it, with all of that? Right? Uncomfortable though it is, the fact that that questioning arises so strongly is actually testament to our evolution. You're evolving beyond sleepwalking through life. So, when you hear that, what do you think? What happens? Uh, again, may I phrase the question a little incorrectly too? Because uh, I feel maybe uh, how should I spend my time? I guess. Mm. Like there's some time I spend sitting and practicing, mm. and then the other times like yeah, do stuff. Yeah. So what's worth doing? Yeah. Okay, so partly same contemplation. What's what? How? What's worth supporting? Right? Whatever you support, that's what grows. Whatever you support, that's what gets supported. Right. So, when I really the, the sometimes I know I know what I would theoretically want to support, and then I see what I'm doing. It's like, oh, whatever you support, that's what gets supported. So to actually contemplate, what do I want to support? Yeah, important. And at the same time, of course, like you say, sometimes you spend sitting and uh, formal practice, and sometimes you have other things to do. Well, hey, you and me and everybody else who's ever practiced the path, including the great spiritual luminaries that we always see in cross-legged position as if that's all they they were ever doing, right? You know, the Buddha, sometimes he was sitting, sometimes he was walking, sometimes he was contemplating... And sometimes you had to do stuff. <laughs> right? Huh? So it's not so much, of course, sometimes you have to do stuff. But it sounds like, and it's, it's, it's uh, almost inevitable, that as our love for practice deepens, some of the, the stuff I have to do starts to look um, like a distraction, or it starts to look hollow, or... And there's some sort of subtle sense that that where it's at is the spiritual life. This this is where it's at. And oh, and that's something else. That's mundane, etc., etc. So there's there's two things I would say that you might orientate around with that. One of them is within the stuff you have to do to see what are the opportunities there for being kind, being mindful, and being wise. Whatever it is, the stuff you have to do, I guarantee that there are a lot of opportunities to attune to your heart, right, and the opportunity to to engage kindly with yourself and with others and with what's happening. I guarantee there's plenty of opportunities to be mindful, right, to bring your attention back to here, and plenty of opportunities to... Be wise to, to see what uh, the way in which your assumptions and reactions are conditioning your sense of what this moment is. So that's one part of it, right? Seeing how those opportunities can... So that your practice isn't just this, but actually includes the doing stuff more and more fully. And at the same time, you know, to the extent that that existential questioning is burning in you, 
it may well be that some of the stuff you do starts to stand out as not being in alignment with this with what you with your what your heart's longing for and that's the uncomfortable contemplation right what do i really want to support and what am i supporting and if those two things aren't well aligned you'll suffer in the non-alignment because you you know you're waking up about what your heart is longing for so uh trust the waking up and it will really support the courage that it might take to bring what the stuff you do is into alignment with what you really want to support thank you, thank you. okay good luck yeah Good luck to you too. <laughs> yeah. is it that gets threatened when things aren't neat and perfect? What happens to you when you're confronted with right? I mean, you, of course we know theoretically I can't, I can't manage that to make everything neat and perfect. But what actually happens, like emotionally? Or what's the reaction? What gets threatened when things can't be made neat and controlled and perfect? I think, I think it's fear. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to fear. I think it's that I'm not taking care of, like I'm not going to be okay uh-huh. if it doesn't look like this. Okay, good. So, uh, and I would assume that that has some history mm-hmm. to it, right? And that the, the attempt to make things neat and controlled and perfect has, is a learned response to whatever felt out of control, mm-hmm. imperfect, unsafe, right, in earlier life. And so you evolved, oh great, well done. Really, that's a, you know, it's a skillful coping mechanism. Things feel un, un, you know, chaotic and uncontrolled, and so I learn that whatever control I can exert on my environment, I'll do that, and it gives me a sense of a little bit of safety and ease. Right? So it's not a wrong thing. It's a, it's a, a, whenever you develop that and however you developed it, it was a skillful thing. It was a helpful thing. And... You've also, you're also growing, evolving beyond that, right? Because you're starting to recognize, well, okay, that was helpful, but it doesn't actually work. It works to a certain extent, right, to give you a little bit of a sense of safety. And, you know, in a larger sense, it's not possible. So, one, enjoy. Enjoy where you can. Enjoy your neatness. You know, tidy your apartment and enjoy it. And when it's finished and you feel that sense of... Oh, enjoy that sense of ah. Oh, right? Let yourself feel the way in which a certain kind of neatness and um, uh, 
perfection or whatever delights your heart. And seek out that perfection. Look for it. Look for it in the trees. You know, when you walk in the park, look at the kind of just the natural perfection that a tree has. And uh, whatever it is that lights you up in that way, right? Look at Japanese architecture if you want neatness and perfection. <laughs> Something, you know, a Zen aesthetic. Go and hang out with the Zen guys in New York, right? Enjoy, enjoy, really enjoy all of that stuff. But all, and, and at the same time, start to just stay really kind of curious and plugged in and gentle with yourself when that's not available, when things are messy and difficult. And like you know from your history, the view will arise, oh, there's something unsafe and scary here. Right? So you have to really take care of that. Right? Take care of the one who feels threatened and unsafe. But also to see, is it true? You know that the history will make it seem true. Right? But to actually see, is it true? So you get to actually separate the current reality from the historical conditioning. Does that make sense when I say it like that? Yeah. So it's not wrong. It's not, oh, I shouldn't be doing that because uh, it's impossible to make life perfect. No, that's the way your habit has evolved, and it was a helpful one. But you get to separate out the, the way the history is giving a distorting lens on the present. And, so actually, and then if you see, some moments it might be true. There might be a messiness and a chaos here that doesn't feel safe. Right? But, <coughs> but more often the history will make it appear not safe. And actually, when you check it out, it's like, oh, actually, things are okay. They're a little messier than I would like, but they're okay. And to the extent that you can see that and trust that, then you let yourself dare to just trust, you know, even viscerally. Let yourself feel that this is trustworthy, even though it's not quite how I'd like it to be. And even though the history says, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, you've got to... It's like, okay... Let the history rant, but let your the the you know viscerally you just let yourself trust it, and that will start to you know that visceral response to what's happening is way more powerful than the than the old historical ideas that just keep you know shouting their selves at us. I have a really hard time actually enjoying things and having fun, you know, like. I feel so much more comfortable. If you put a pile of work in front of me, I will gladly do it. If you say, you know, go have fun, I'm like, I don't know how to do that. And I think so much of the, you know, compulsively planning for the future, um, I don't know, like I, it prevents me from being able to enjoy now, but then it's also finding balance because, you know, the universe, whatever, whatever higher power there is, isn't going to, you know, write applications for you and get references. So how do you find a balance between being prepared for the future and feeling safe, mm. taking care of, and then at mm. the same time, you know? Yep, 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 yep. Let me know once you find out. <laughs> of course, the future needs some preparation, right? I mean, this trip, I went from home to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Delhi, Delhi to San Francisco, San Francisco to New York. Quite a lot of details, right, to figure out. Just travel times and accommodation and managing, the, you know, uh, time zone changes and where I'm staying in each place, etc. But actually, that stuff is very 
very simple. It just doesn't need much attention. It's like, oh, when, what's the date I'm going? And then we might need to spend a few minutes, oh, I can't do that date because of this. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nothing, actually. Right? It's just a bit of time and a bit of attention. But what makes it a much more something is that it's often underpinned with a sense of control, anxiety, fear, projection, hope. Uh, well, that's enough already. Right? <laughs> and, and that adds a whole charge as if, as if something called my well-being and happiness and safety and everything is, is dependent on getting this right. As if there is a right. I've got to find the right place to stay. There isn't a right place. Right? There's just a place. So just, you know, you're invited to live in the truth of that. Preparing for the future takes some attention, but actually not very much. So when you find yourself compulsively preparing, right, all your attention goes to the, the, the thing that you're trying to prepare, right? And you're looking through the compulsion at the thing, and then the thing is being coloured by the compulsion. But what you're actually invited to do, you know yourself. Like you say, I, I do it in this compulsive and controlling way. Good that you know you're doing it like that. So then start to look at the compulsion and the control itself rather than what it is you're trying to compulsively control. Because that, you can, there's an infinite amount of compulsive controlling thoughts you can generate around that. On and on, right? And even when you get it right, then it's just the next thing to compulsively control. Oh, exhausting. <laughs> so the shift is from looking through compulsion and control at the current object to shifting one's gaze to looking at the compulsion and control itself. Not making it wrong, but study it. Make friends with it. Explore it. See how, oh yes, whatever you know about the history is that gives rise to it. And experiment in small ways with Unplanning. Just in small ways. No rehearsal and no replay. It's in small ways. Like speaking in a group. That's a good way. Especially for those who find it difficult to speak. You know how one can rehearse? Oh, I'll say this, I'll say this, I'll say this. And then how does it sound and how will it sound? And, oh. and then one says something, anything... And it may or may not correspond to the rehearsal. And then it's finished. And then replay. What did I say? How did it sound? <laughs> so the, the actual planning, I need to go on this date and I need to stay there. Nothing. It, but the rehearsal and replay, woof, takes a huge amount of energy. And it, it, it actually, you know, it brings along anxiety and regret with it. So just in whatever small way, just to see if you can experiment with the practice of no rehearsal and no replay. doesn't mean that the rehearsaling and, re and replaying won't happen, but when you notice it happening, whoop, just drop it, drop it, drop it. And you might find that life configures itself in all kinds of ways. And you're, the, what, you're, you're writing the, whatever it is, the application, not the thingy, you know. But, you, the, but it's underpinned by a sense of simplicity and fluidity.
even in life in general, is when I get to a place of awareness, mm. I start to feel very ungrounded. Mm-hmm. And then that ungroundedness doesn't feel like peace. No. It feels very, I start to get antsy or I feel anxiety. Mm. I think it can relate to something that you mentioned about like planning the future all the time or worrying yeah. about the future or thinking about the past as this way to avoid the anxiety of the present. Yeah. And so I guess my question is what to do with the anxiety. Mm. I know, I mean, look at it, study it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you say, first of all, you say, when I, when I uh, get to a place of awareness, I feel ungrounded. Mm-hmm. Right? So what about just right now? Just notice the fact you're aware right now. Right? Does it feel ungrounded? A little bit. Okay. okay. So you can just notice the, the, the sense of ungrounded. Right? And sense your, feel your body. No, nothing particular, but just notice the, you know, the feel of your hands and your lap and the way your legs are crossed. Just let your attention kind of fill out into the natural sense of body sitting here. I feel, yeah, there's like a little buzzing. Okay, yeah, so just include that. That's part of what's happening is a buzzing in your body. Right. How is it to just let your awareness suffuse this? buzzing, sitting body. Can I answer or Yeah, no, yeah, please. Um, I guess I have an urge to escape it. Uh-huh, okay, good. So what... that's what I feel when I'm sitting. Yeah. I want out of this space. Yeah, good. So what is it that's uncomfortable or threatening about just feeling your body that makes you want to escape? Like, let yourself actually find out in the experience. I mean, there's physical manifestations that I feel. Sometimes my heart racing, I become aware of it. Uh-huh. But not sometimes. Let's not worry about sometimes. Let's worry just what's actually here. You, you say, I can sense it, and I feel like I want to get away from it. So, okay. So what is it that's happening that feels like I need to, you need to move away from it? Because mm-hmm. that feels what threatening, revealing, stark. all those endless engagement with scenarios of the abstract very compelling and yet that's partly why you come to this practice I guess because of feeling wow I'm such a slave to the compulsion of the abstract and yet so I say uh, let's do the practice where I come back from the compulsions of the abstract to the actuality of the immediate 
But, and when you f sense into the actuality of the immediate, what do you notice? You notice all the compulsions of the abstract. Great. That's why you got into this practice, to work with that. But it's uncomfortable. When it's too uncomfortable, when you just feel those compulsions and it's too uncomfortable, the nature of the abstract is it happens sort of up and out. Right? Oh, this thing over here. The actuality of the immediate is that it happens here. Right? But often what we notice here is all the discomfort of, want, of wanting to be pulled out in a lot of different directions. So when that's happening and it feels too much, let your attention go down. Down, like now. Down into your seat. Down into your legs. Put both feet on the floor. And just feel that sense of down. 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 What's it like down there? Yeah, yeah. But I guess distracts me away from what? Yeah, it's not so much that it, I would say that it distracts you from the anxiety, but it emphasizes the quality of here, ground. And here is an embodied experience, right? Here can only be an embodied experience, otherwise, it's abstract. But if it's just a sense of here in all the body, the, the anxieties and compulsions play out, can play out quite strongly energetically, particularly in your torso. That's often where all of that stuff feels like it's going on. So as a refuge from that, take your attention down. And if you can't get down or stay down, you can even stomp your feet or press them into the floor or even hold your feet. There's something about feet. Feet never get ever. I've never had my feet get reactive or compulsive. Right? They just don't. Reactions and compulsions happen energetically higher up in the body, basically from genitals to, to throat. Right? There is stuff just pure abstraction. But the, the compulsions are all going on here. So it's, yeah, it might, it's hard, but that's why it's a practice, right? And I would just encourage you to really use that. You might discover that your legs and your feet are an amazing refuge from compulsion in sitting, but also in walking. The movement of walking can stimulate a lot of abstraction. All the people you're seeing on the street, the thought of where you're going, the, the, the stimulations and associations of the billboards, etc., Okay, it's not to make that wrong, but what about if I walk, like, letting all of my energy that's going... <gasps> feel your feet walking. It might be a, a, an extraordinary, liberating, totally transformative training that you can do to just train your attention to live in the, the lowest part of your physical experience. And with that sense of ground getting well established, it'll be easier to expand it in to include some of that stuff without it being so provocative and uh, anxiety-provoking. Okay. How are we doing? Well, we'll okay, so one more, and then we'll uh, just uh, take a little break and switch channels a bit. So I don't know if I have a question, like a discussion, or a comment. I don't know. That's okay. Okay. 
So uh, listening to you, um, the, so when you were talking about looking back on your practice, so I've been practicing, I don't know, like formally for her five or six years, mm. and done retreats and done all these great things mm. do. Um, and so when you talk about like looking at your training over time and seeing how it's changed, I see no change at all in my training. And in one way, I think it's actually really great. Like, I think this is the first time I realized, like, wow, I'm actually really lucky that I've experienced no change or growth whatsoever in my training because I don't see, I have no clinging to an end of a path, right? Because I haven't noticed some big movement, so I don't have the experience of going, like, there was that one time on retreat where, like, I was in bliss. I was like, when is that? You know, that's <laughs> Um, I do think in wisdom, I, that's where I've like noticed, that's probably what's kept me going, is I've noticed the change in wisdom. But the past, um, like three or four months, I've had like extreme uncertainty in my life, and so, you know, sitting is really frustrating, and really like I get panicky when I'm going to sit, and so I haven't been doing it. And um, I have tons of time, like I, all I have is time, so time is not my excuse. Um, and I've had tons of advice from teachers, really great anchors have been given to me, really great methods of meditating that have worked, that are really wonderful. Um, and yet, like, you know, my partner is sitting there, like, meditating in the morning, and I'm, like, watching The Daily Show, and he's like, you know, do you want to, do you want to meditate? And I'm like, no. And definitely it's a stress, but one of the things I wonder is if maybe, like, if I had, had noticed some change or in my sitting, that it might feel like worth it to, mm -hmm. to sit, mm -hmm. but it sort of feels like the same reason I don't go to the gym probably, which is like, I know that it's having this great impact on my life and I become so much more wise, but there's no impact right now, so I'm like, you know, it would be really good for me in the long run if I sat, yeah. and then I'm not because it's so stressful for yeah. me to sit right Okay. So I don't yeah. Okay. So when you say there's uh, no change in your training, you mean in terms of the deepening quality of your meditation practice? Yeah, of the actual formal. Yeah. And when you say, but there has been a change in wisdom, right? In terms of you know, they're just more spacious, just to notice when you're getting reactive. Yeah. In and the to, rest of my. In the rest. Yeah. Of, yeah. yeah. Would you would you say that there seems like there's a link between? That deepening wisdom and your low-grade, never-evolving meditation practice. Uh, maybe. You mean, like, it, like, there's certainly a link between my sitting, but do you mean, like, the fact that my sitting is improving? No, I mean, the, the fact that you sit, and it, it never, okay, let's, it never improves. You, you're distracted or, or tired or everything else, yeah. but you've kept doing it. Right, despite it being spectacularly un un unprogressive, right? <laughs> and the fact that you've just, in a pretty steady way, for those years, you know, uh, brought yourself to your cushion. Yes. There seems to be a link between the fact of doing that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah. But it still isn't like. That's why, that's why I mean, it's sort of like. You know, out. why did you get into this stuff? Was it to become a good meditator? Right. Once I saw that there was actually impact on the rest of my life, I was like, oh, screw whether I'm a good meditator or not. Like, yeah. That's, doing... yeah, I totally agree. Screw, screw whether you're a good meditator right. or not. We didn't really, even if we had some misguided idea that it would be good to be good at meditation, and probably all kinds of weird ideas. Who was it? Just this week I met some, oh, I've, oh, oh this is a, it's a bit of a story, but... 
some friends who live on the Upper East Side in a quite nice apartment invited me to stay with them when I was in New York. So I thought, that's, that's nice. But they were having some work done on their apartment, and so they're staying at her sister's apartment. And I thought, it's one thing to be guests of my friends. It's another thing to be guests of my friends where they're already guests of somebody else. And I thought, it's a bit complicated. I'll sort myself out. So I just looked on Airbnb, and I found a place in Midtown, just a couple of blocks from here. I thought it'd be convenient, etc. Okay, it seemed okay. I went there... And the moment the woman answered the door, she, I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> she was very sweet. I liked her. But she was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and the apartment was completely, like, crazy. It was stacked full of stuff, like, from floor to ceiling, like, just stuff everywhere. And the description had said that it would be... Uh, it was a private room in an apartment... And it was like a mattress behind a screen, and then she was like sleeping there, and then she's like, "Oh, do you mind if I smoke?" And I'm like, "Well," <laughs> she's like, "Oh, no, it's fine. I just open the window and smoke out the windows." And she's smoking out the windows, all blowing back in. I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so, uh, but okay, I had to spend the night there. So, I, I, um, she didn't go to bed till like 5 a.m. And, you know, there's no separation in this flat. And she's smoking out the window all night. I'm like... (laughs) So I wrote an email to my friends in the Upper East Side about it, like, about 12 o'clock at night while I'm lying there not sleeping. Saying, help! (laughs) So anyway, the next morning I moved over over there. But she had all kinds of interesting questions for me, this woman, about meditation, right? Like, can you levitate? She asked me. said, seriously, can you levitate? So I said, well, no, but just in case you're curious. But also, like, you know, the idea that that's where the meditation might be pointed. You know, so we might have some exotic ideas at the beginning about what what this exotic, extraordinary experience of meditation might lead to. But actually, even if that's true at the beginning, the, the exotic part evaporates off quite quickly. And what we're really much more interested in is the changing quality of our life and of the capacity for a freer way of being in life, a more sensitive way of attuning to life, a more more room in our heart to respond to life. And it sounds like that's happening. And so making that link is really important. And the quality of our meditation practice really isn't important. I mean, of course, it's great if, uh, if and when and as it, it, it deepens and some sublime qualities of uh, stillness and uh, might come into our meditation practice. But it's, it's an erroneous link. If we measure our practice and we think it ought to be deepening and it ought to be deepening, and we look back to some, either we look back to some previous experience, like I was saying earlier, or we look to some ideal, like I was also like with the fruit, of imagining what good meditation would be like. And actually, there's the, mo- the most important quality isn't the, the depth or the stillness or the concentration of our practice. The most important quality is the sincerity of it. It's the sincerity of being willing to sit down and just attune to yourself, and to sense into life, to sense the immediacy of things, 
to orientate towards immediate, fluid, natural existence. Whatever, however much from the mind's bouncing around, the orientation to that and the sincerity of it, it transforms the way we experience life. And your own report is testament to that. So, maybe, low-grade, unprogressive, uh, poor quality meditation practice is just what you need. (laughs) (laughs) And if the uncertainty and anxiety is making you feel resistant to practice at the moment, Set the bar really low, yeah. right? Just so you, so you sit for three minutes. Yeah. Just enough time that you can feel the, the uncertainty and the everything else, and then if it becomes unmanageable or difficult, okay, get up. But the most important thing, again, is, isn't how long we sit for. It's the moment that you actually sit down. Because it's the moment you're actually orientating your attention from all of that to this. And then if you stay there for a while, well, nice. Right? But there's something, the regularity and the sincerity, much more important than the impressive length of time or the impressive uh, types of experience you might have. Okay. So let's uh, spend a little time sitting together and we could, just to really evoke some of the possibilities that we've been exploring. Let's see if we can sit in a way that expresses sincerity moment by moment without measurement. Sometimes I speak about that as 100% commitment plus 100% forgiveness. If you only have one or the other, you get into trouble. If you just only have a sense of right, commitment, I'm really going to be present, I'm really going to be mindful, it puts a lot of pressure on oneself. If you only have the forgiveness, oh, it's okay, I just, you know, you just go off into this de- daydream, I'm just being kind to myself, <laughs> don't want to give myself a hard time. <laughs> Martin says, don't judge. <laughs> So, just to see, what does it mean to, to really engage one's sincerity, right? To meet this moment, to sense this body, to allow awareness to hold whatever's arising, to be willing to not follow the thought streams, or when one notices that nevertheless, attention has just been seduced by this thought stream, to in that moment to be committed to dropping it. Not, oh, well, I will drop it in a couple of minutes, but it's quite interesting this way. <laughs> right? Whatever you support, that's what gets supported. Whatever you feed, that's what grows. And at the same time, to have that gentleness with one's own practice that when you notice your attention's gone somewhere, oh, you don't make a big deal out of it. No blame, no drama, no concern with why was I caught up, how long was I caught up for, what does that mean about my practice? Why would you do all that? 
just, it's just gentleness or forgiveness. It's absolutely irrelevant where you went, why you went there, how long you were there for. What's relevant, what's the cause for celebration, is the fact that even though I was so caught up in my own little uh, delusion, life has reasserted its immediacy. Life has woken me up to the fact of that abstraction and offered me the opportunity to surrender it back to awareness. So in this spirit, let's spend a little time together in meditation. the path of a deepening goodness of heart, a deepening power and clarity and presence of mind, and a liberating wisdom. And may we practice without leaving ourselves for the illusion of a different experience. And we practice without judging ourselves and undermining our practice. May we practice without the idea that the fulfillment of the path is anywhere other than right here. and thus to be more fully intimate with this moment, this experience, more fully, more fluidly, more freely. And like this, the path unfolds. about 15 minutes uh, left to us and as you've uh, sat with and listened to and reflected on what we've been exploring if there's anything else that you'd like to bring forth now's the chance Just come, you want to just come forward a little, sort of join the group, and then I can hear you better. <laughs> the door's okay. So, um, my question is regarding being a relation to others. Mm. So, earlier you mentioned that the need 
that he was separated from the world and always tries to negotiate in terms of getting what I want, affirming what I don't want, mm. etc. And I, I have felt this sense of connectedness and the, the universality of human experience, etc. This type of settings, yeah. where um, you know people share more openly, and also, but, but I think that the important thing is not the openness of sharing, is the lack of attachment. So I, I am blessed to have friends with whom I share very openly. Mm-hmm. It's not that I have fake relationships in my life, and this is the only moment of truth. It's that you know now we share this beautiful moment, but essentially, if you say, Ellie, you know, I don't really like you. I never want to see you again. I, I don't know you, so it doesn't hurt that much. But what if, but with my friends in real life, yeah. especially family relationship with the opposite sex, the attachment that I feel is, is like a matter of, of survival. So a lot of abandonment, fear of future abandonment, you know, there are many ways to conceptualize and intellectualize. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you have any advice or any insight on you know, in relation, in terms of relationship, when at the same time you want to feel the love and connection, yeah. but be free at the same time, if this is the most, that's my So it's a, it's a little like we were exploring earlier around the, the control and all, right? Firstly, enjoy and make the most of those relationships where, you've, where you can share openly, where you have a trust in the goodness of the other and their intention, a, goodness, a trust in the goodness of your own intention, and uh, the trust in the goodness of the field of that relationship that develops out of that. It's a very precious resource. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a painful tragedy that uh, often people don't even know that that's possible, let alone actually having the resource of that in their lives. So, you know, whether that's in the, you know, the personal relationships or in the wider sense of a field like this, right? That's what Sangha is. It's a, a supportive field, a trustworthy field. And so to really let yourself kind of... Uh, to let your cells feel the goodness of that, right? So that it's not just the idea of trusting that and the liking of it, but actually letting yourself kind of, letting the sense of the goodness of it sort of soak into you so you know it deeply. And then that becomes a, um, a reflection of something that's true about the trustworthiness of experience, right? One can, actually, one's own experience itself is always trustworthy if we really meet it. So when you have an outer situation, a relationship or a field of relationship that reflects that trustworthiness, it's a, it's a great blessing. It's something very potent, right? You let yourself feel, oh, what is it like? Like this environment allows me or invites me more naturally, <clears throat> more easily, to feel into what it's like to trust being here. Right. And because some situations don't naturally invite us to trust being here. There's a sense of suspicion or uh, manipulation or uh, unkindness or whatever it might be, right? And we can find situations. 
that don't naturally invite us to trust. And we tend to internalize those situations more strongly. You know, the situations that we've grown up with that have uh, shown us in some way something unsafe or untrustworthy uh, have formed a significant part of what we store as a kind of a vague you know, tension or resistance to what might be happening. So use the resource of those, those trustworthy fields and when the situation isn't trustworthy, you might feel, well, what is trustworthy? Because there's no, nobody can set up the conditions where there's this relationships and the field is always trustworthy, right? But what is? And the, the, those relationships that have the goodness in them that allow you to trust being here, to kind of relax in your cells, as it were, that is always trustworthy, even if the outer situation isn't. But the, the, the goodness of those trustworthy relationships are, are very good support in letting yourself learn to abide within the sphere of trusting th this moment, this experience. And actually that goes a long way to providing the discernment for when, okay, well, I can't trust what's being said, or I can't trust what's happening around me. Right? So I might need to do whatever is necessary to take care of that, respond to that, speak about that, avoid that, for example. But uh, I can trust the, uh, the basic holding capacity of awareness to meet and allow and open up experience. So that then even an untrustworthy situation can be an opportunity both to, uh, to study the tendency to resist and to see, just as an opening question, to see what could be trusted into. Does that make sense when I say it like that? Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's a practice. Right? If it, was, if it was easy, if it was so easy that it didn't need any practice, I'd be out of a job and you'd have no need to come here. Right? Other than one might choose to come here just for the joy of hanging out with beings that radiate trustworthiness. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that um, pursuing the path can just be a way of achieving momentary, momentary self-realization, or do you think that that always leads to sort of a life cycle of, <clears throat> of, 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 of a life cycle of self-realization? So does it always have to lead to a life cycle of self-realization? I don't know. I don't know quite what you mean when you say uh, momentary self-realization. So, I guess it goes back to, I think, where your question was brilliant, but um, I, I, I don't quite understand why the path, or pursuing the path, has to be um, all about the present. I find it a little bit conflicting with kind of the the reality that, that we live, right? Versus I find a lot of value hmm. in the process of pursuing that path for moment to moment mm -hmm. self-realization, meaning the present at this time versus always living in the present, which I think is one of the, one of the I believe, shortcomings of Zen, and from an economic perspective, from a social perspective. But 
but not from a psychological perspective at one moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned that if one always leads to the other, then it just creates a cycle of, 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 of permanence uh -huh. in terms of social and economic. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, look at, I mean, you know, rather than you and me speculate about that, look at the examples around you. Look at the examples around you. Look at the examples of what seems to happen to the lives of people that invest a lot of time in just being present. Does what happen seem to be a kind of stasis where one gets just comfortable with the presence with what's happening in the present and loses concern with a vision or possibility of what could be um, stood up for, uh, protested against, spoken out about, etc., etc. Right? In which case, there would be very l a legitimate concern. Right? If the, if the fruits of this kind of practice seem to be, oh, well, everything's just coming and going and there's nothing to do about anything, then one might have some legitimate concerns while they're the world's going to hell in a handcart uh, environmentally and where there are social justice issues that, need, uh, that we might feel moved to respond to and speak about, etc., etc. So I would say if that's, if that's what seems to be the fruits, if you come across a path, a tradition, a teacher, a teaching where, which seem, where the sense of present moment seems to support an indifference to the status quo, then at least given your seeming concern for that thing, that wouldn't be, you wouldn't want to go down that road, right? So I would say to uh, make sure, if that's important to you, that you can, that you can find that in the, in the connection with a teacher or a teaching, that you find uh, that where that sense of honouring the present moment and exploring the present moment gives rise to a, a deep passionate concern with how we can respond to the present moment in a way that honours the complexity of life. It might honour its beauty, but also honours that which needs speaking out about and uh, responding to. Sure. I, I just was concerned with the way you responded to, to Deepak's question and, and, and a lot of things you say. And then I know mm. the tradition of Buddhism mm. and hermits and that, that the implied message is that the, the real enlightenment at the end of the day is really through the path of sort of abstraction and, and self-realization and, and, and mm. you know, and separation from what is just purely yeah. material. Well, that's why I say to look for what fits for you, because I don't think, there, I, I don't think there's a single model. In fact, let's face it, there just definitely isn't a single model. If there was a single model, we'd be able to point to it everywhere and see what it is. But there are models that, uh, that are more kind of ascetic, renunciate, say withdrawn from the world, and that have a depth and beauty to them. And there are models that are, much, that are more engaged. There are models where the, the transformation of a mind is primary, and there are models where the tr transformation through service or social engagement or something is uh, equally emphasised. So without there needing to be dividing that into right, and right model and wrong model, it sounds like some sense of the engagement with the wider sphere is important to you. So, you know, 
So if that's important to you, it would be important that that bit is getting nourished and served in your practice. And that might be through looking, checking for a sangha where that's emphasized, or it might be by having the conversation in the sangha that you will anyway love to, to, to bring forth those issues or areas that seem to you like they need attention if it seems like they're not getting attention. And, you know, the first few years of my practice, I was living in the Himalayas and doing a lot of very intensive meditation, and it was a very ascetic, renunciate style of practice. And then I met a woman, and she got pregnant in a rather unplanned way, and suddenly it was like, oh, family life. Okay, I need a different vision for Dharma practice, because it ain't going to be focused around meditation retreat, at least for the next 20 years or so. So then, uh, so the last 20, my daughter's now 20. So those 20 years have been very much um, an exploration around the aliveness of Dharma practice and of transformation within just the, the engagement of family life and the, uh, the, the financial responsibilities that, bri- that brings and all of the, all the rest of it, right? And yet I also at the same time have a, very, a great love for those more ascetic forms, And I certainly, if somebody's expressing, like we heard earlier, some, you know, that what our practice does is wake us up to some area of life, which may be a job, like we were hearing, or maybe some other area of life, that even though, just because I've invested in it for some years or decades, and just because society gives a lot of support to that investment as being the right thing, you know, the Buddha called this practice going against the stream, against the stream of greed, hatred, and delusion against the stream of demand, defences and distractions. And, you know, we've got a society that's pretty effectively learned to, to, to support that stream. Right? We've got the whole of consumer culture is like a globalised institutionalization of greed. The whole military complex is a global institutionalization of uh, aggression and hatred. And the whole kind of, you know, the mediatized infotainment uh, matrix is an institutionalization of distraction. So it may be that our practice starts to wake us up to some hard questions about what we want to support in terms of lifestyle and work and culture and consumption and politics and uh, economic systems and all of that stuff. And if that leads us towards a more revolutionary spirit, that might, make, that might be uncomfortable for the bit of us that's invested in the status quo, but I, wouldn't, I don't think we should make any apology for that. You know, there is a very revolutionary spirit in Dharma practice. Buddha was a, a social revolutionary as well as a spiritual revolutionary. Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, friends. Well, it's uh, almost two o'clock. So just to uh, extend my appreciation to New York Insight for inviting me. And when they wrote to me earlier and asked me to if I would... Uh, you know, come a little more consistently and be more involved here. I mean, as consistently as that can be, given that I live on another continent. Right? But um, I've, uh, I really appreciated the, the, uh, 
the place here when I came last time, and uh, I've always very, I've always really, really enjoyed my contact with Gina over the ten years or so that I've known her, and so I just want to also reflect back um, my l- love for New York Insight and for her, and my celebration of your good fortune in having New York Insight be here and having uh, Gina as the guiding teacher, as well as others that contribute in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. And just to encourage, you know, if this, if this practice and this place and these teachings and all the content and this community and all of that, if it nourishes you, you know, don't let that get lost, that nourishment, amidst the details and dramas and duties of daily life. So, you know, let all this support you. So, thank you for coming. Thank you for exploring. Thank you for the dana that you offer to support me. And I hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.